Well, if you brought your copy of God's Word, it looks like you're going to need one this morning. I need you to open to Matthew chapter 3. Our um, PowerPoint seems to be having a difficulty of sorts. Give it one more second here to see if it's a plug-in issue with me. I don't think that it is. why the IT crew is working on our PowerPoint. Hey, there we go. There we go. We're almost there. We are going to be finishing up Matthew chapter 3 this morning. And uh, last week, um, I probably preached one of my longest messages. And um, this week, I'm probably going to preach one of my shortest. Now, before you say hallelujah, amen, you just never know. That's not a promise. It's just a prediction it's just a prediction I've been wrong on these these predictions before that's right so um, the the plan wasn't to make up for last week's overage but um, transitioning from Matthew chapter 3 into chapter 4 there's um, a larger section that I'm wanting to jump into so we're primarily going to be looking at and trying to fi- and finishing up not trying but finishing up Matthew chapter 3 which deals with the baptism of Jesus uh, and the reception of the Holy Spirit on Jesus as he begins his three-year public ministry. Now, Matthew doesn't say this exactly in as many words, but it seems very easy to see that this occasion in the life and times of both John and Jesus is the point in time at which King Jesus was being commissioned by God the Father for ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit. So it's a very significant transition. John has been setting, setting us up here, heretofore in, uh, from Matthew chapter 1, 1, all the way to the point of the preparation and the presentation of the king in his earthly ministry during his first advent. And we see this a little bit later in Matthew's gospel in chapter 12 verse 17 through 21 it says this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet behold my servant whom I have chosen my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased sounds like very familiar language right here my son in whom I am well pleased coming up from his baptism I will put my spirit upon him which is what happens at the time as he comes up from the water as we're going to see I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. So it, it seems without question that the reception of the Holy Spirit upon Jesus following his public baptism uh, could easily be described as the beginning of his three-year public ministry of leading justice to victory. Don't you like this right here at the end of verse 20? 
until he leads justice to victory, which is exactly what Jesus did at the cross of Calvary. And it's interesting, in the culture in which we live, we always seem to have loud voices out there clamoring for what? Justice. No Jesus, no justice. You want justice, you find it in Jesus. Now, in this world, if you seek to follow after Christ, there will be persecutions that will come along. But justice was secured at the cross of Calvary, and Jesus guaranteed that ultimate justice will prevail. And we know from his, on his second advent, when he comes back again, what did John say earlier in Matthew's gospel here? He said to those, uh, those brood of vipers, those Pharisees and Sadducees, who warned you to flee from the, the wrath to come? Because the connection of his coming and the establishment of his kingdom with wrath is a very established fact within Old Testament prophets. And we know that he's going to come back and the wrath of the Lamb will mete out justice perfectly on the nations that have rebelled against God for all these many years. Well, as a result of the Holy Spirit's presence with Jesus during the duration of his ministry, we see throughout the Gospels that Jesus says many things like this. I'm just going to give you one little sampling here out of Matthew's Gospel in chapter 12, since we're still here in chapter 12, in verse 28. Notice what Jesus said. He said, but if but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus here is without question attributing his ability to cast out these demons by the Holy Spirit. And so the, the um, reception of the Spirit of Jesus at the baptism seems to be without question the, uh, the beginning of the ministry of God's coronation of King Jesus <clears throat> and his earthly three-and-a-half-year ministry that leads to justice, leads justice to victory at the cross of Christ. And so, again, we could go through, and I could show you many occasions where it articulates that what Jesus did was by the Holy Spirit, the power of the Spirit continually being upon Christ throughout the, throughout the duration of his three-year earthly Ministry, And as a matter of fact, what's interesting when we think about this is this is what Jesus tells his apostles that the Holy Spirit's going to do for them whenever the Holy Spirit comes upon them, that they too would receive power for ministry. We see that articulated there in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus said to them, if you remember in the context here, these, these, uh, these disciples, these apostles were asking Jesus about the, the formation of his earthly kingdom. He said, well, okay, so all this has taken place, all of the, your death, your burial, your resurrection. Well, how about now? Is now the time that you're going to actually be establishing this earthly kingdom? And so it's in this context, back in verse 4, it says that he spoke with them for a, a period of time concerning the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And he says to them here in verse 8 that you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And in the same way that we see that Jesus was the receptor of the Holy Spirit at his baptism, and it gave him a sense of Holy Spirit power for ministry, his three-year public ministry. He did things like casting out demons by the Spirit of God, as well as the other miracles and signs and wonders that Jesus did. Sometimes we tend to just attribute the fact that Jesus did miraculous things to his very nature of being God. But it's important to recognize that the Spirit descended upon him and stayed upon him, and he did things by the Spirit of God, things such as miraculous signs and wonders and miracles. 
And we also see that he attributes this or he, he, he bestows this same thing upon his apostles. When you receive, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then you'll be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. And so when the Spirit descended upon them while in the upper room on that day of Pentecost, it was Peter who affirmed that what was happening was by means of the Holy Spirit. If you remember, uh, they were saying, well, the, these, these, people, these men are drunk. They're out there and they're speaking in different languages, and it just seemed all confusing multiple different languages being spoken at the same time what's are these people drunk and he says well of course they're not drunk it's only 10 a.m in the morning they reserve that for later in the evening now that's a joke because because we all know that drinks in the new testament time there was no alcohol in them it was completely different right okay never mind never mind this not even let's not even mess with that okay no and so he, he says there, notice what Peter said in, in Acts 2, 16. This is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. So this, the reception of the Spirit is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And notice he says, and it shall be in the last days. Peter here is articulating the last days as beginning with Pentecost. And if we were to read through the, through the duration of what he quotes there from Joel, the last days, according to Peter which he's taking his cues from Joel, begins at Pentecost and ends with the coming day of the Lord. That that span of time is going to be what is in the last days, and it shall be in the last days. God says that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit. So, when we get to the end of Acts chapter 2, notice what it says. Acts 2:43, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Just like Jesus told them in Acts 1:8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses. The Holy Spirit descends and it's almost as in the same way with Jesus, a coronation of an earthly ministry for these apostles with the abiding Holy Spirit now upon them. And we see at the end of that section that many signs and wonders were taking place through the apostles. As a matter of fact, in 2 Corinthians um, 10 or 12, I'm, my chapters are slipping on me here, but the Apostle Paul even artic articulates that the things that they saw Paul doing, he said, the signs and wonders of a true apostle have taken place in your and you are witnesses to this. So we see that this, this same Holy Spirit that descends on Jesus as a coronation for his ministry seems to be a precursor and a type of that which is going to happen to his holy apostles as the Holy Spirit descends and, uh, and, and descends upon them in a permanent way there at the time of Pentecost. And it needs to be noted that the ability to perform said signs and wonders and miracles, whether it was through the ministry of Jesus, whether it was through the ministry of these holy apostles, was all as a result of the work and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Um, there was nothing inherently extraordinary about these apostles. They were, extra, they were, they were unique. They were in a unique way in place and time, uh, sent out by Jesus in a very unique way. They were eyewitnesses to 
to the divine Son of God, the Son of Man. They had a very unique position, but they did not possess an inherent power within themselves to do any of the things that they did. It was all done through the power of the Spirit, as was the case with Jesus. And it seems that Matthew here in his gospel is bringing together in a in a climactic and almost majestic way this transition of all these things that were the setting up of Jesus, the coming of Jesus, the fulfilling of the Old Testament prophecies regarding the Messiah King and transitioning now to the, to the preparatory and the, the, the entrance of said King um, and bringing this uh, life of, uh, of the king into, into great gospel focus here at the end of chapter 3, going into chapter 4, which when we get there, we're going to see that he's then led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And the, the work of the Holy Spirit and the ministry of the Holy Spirit will come into greater focus with regard to how he ministers to Christ. But again, Jesus seems to fully be coming in on stage of his three-year public ministry and the story of the gospel of God through his life. That seems to be the clear intention of Matthew in bringing this together to this head. Now notice in chapter 3, notice verse 13. It says, when Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan coming to John to be, <clears throat> to be baptized by him, but John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered, said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he, John, permitted him, Jesus, to be baptized. And it, we see here in this account from Matthew that John and Jesus clearly had a recognition of each other, that they had a knowledge of one another, that they perhaps even knew each other. We don't know how well they would have known each other, although they were probably cousins, whether first cousins, perhaps second cousins, but they were nonetheless cousins. Um, <clears throat> Jesus wasn't just another Jew coming for baptism. I mean, think about how many times John the Baptist probably baptized um, a multitude of Jewish men who came to him for the baptism of repentance, wanting to make certain that their hearts were in the right place for entrance into the kingdom of, of heaven that was coming on the hills of John's ministry. And he would have had no recollection of who they were whatsoever. They wouldn't have come up. He wasn't going, hey, Fred, how you doing? Hey, hey um, Royce, how are you doing? Hey, Matt, come on. for me. No, he was probably baptizing so many people he had never seen before, didn't know their names, didn't know who they were. When Jesus shows up to be baptized by John, the clear <clears throat> implication here is that there was a recognition and a knowledge of one to the other. And immediately we see John trying to prevent Jesus from the, the water baptism that John was offering. He says, I have need to be baptized by you. I mean, imagine John. He recognizes that, that he's been preaching the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then all of a sudden the king shows up and is seeking water baptism from him. Puts him in a bit of an awkward position. John knew that his baptism was one of repentance, one of an open admittance to being a sinner, one of needing to get forgiveness from God on the basis of, of sin and having a clean heart for entrance into this kingdom that is coming. John knew that his cousin Jesus 
was not in need of special admittance into his own kingdom. Um, John knew that uh, this one who was the, the Messiah king that was coming after him uh, was, was indeed sinless and not in need of his baptism. He, on the other hand, recognized, I have need of your baptism. Now, it's been questioned, and there's many different commentaries that will take this in one of two ways. One way is that when John was saying, I have need to be baptized by you, <clears throat> it, was a, it was an admission from John of his sinfulness, of his sinful nature, and of his need to, in essence, have a water baptism for repentance to make certain that his heart was right for entrance into the king's coming kingdom. That's one of the ways that, that, that this could be taken, this statement from John, and I don't see any problem with that whatsoever because that's, that would be a, a very true statement not only of John the Baptist but of any human that was conceived in iniquity and born in sin would be in need of ultimate forgiveness, the free forgiveness of sins, and the imputation of righteousness. But there's another way that this has been looked at <clears throat> when John says here that he has need to be baptized uh, I need to be baptized by you, that John was perhaps thinking, just again from a few verses back here from Matthew chapter 11, John was saying that, you know, remember what John said, I baptize with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than me. I'm not even fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So another way of perhaps <clears throat> thinking of what John is saying here I'm going to borrow Matt's water. I think this was Matt's water. I'm not sure if this was Matt's or not, but. <clears throat> Thank you, brother. Oh, I have another one right here. Double barrel. I'm, I'm good to go. Okay. So if, if this was the way that John was, was thinking, when, John's, when John says, I have need to be baptized by you, if perhaps John was reflecting on the fact that when Jesus comes, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire, it perhaps is John's way of saying, I have need to be and be the recipient of your baptism of the Spirit, which was evidenced as we took a deeper look, even though it was kind of quickly in Joel 2 and 3 last week, that those who are going to be receiving the, the, the bountiful blessings and the prosperity of the millennial kingdom or the new wine, the new grain, the new oils, and all the blessings that are, come, that are going to come from that would be those who would be the recipients of this spirit baptism, the spirit baptism that is mentioned that Jesus would be doing. So perhaps John was also saying, in order for me to know for certain that I have entrance into your eternal king, you're the king, you're the one setting up a kingdom, and I want to make certain that I have entrance into your kingdom, I need your spirit baptism. I don't think that John was in any way thinking he needed the baptism by fire. That, As we articulated last week, my position is that's an articulation of the baptism of the last day uh, judgment, the day of the Lord judgment. Not just a baptism by fire by means of purification. That takes place by means of repentance and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I think we articulated very well last week that where John was getting this information with regard to Jesus and him being the one who baptizes by the Spirit and fire comes from our Old Testament prophets and how the Old Testament prophets, and in particular Joel, articulates that this baptism by fire would be the judgment of the day of the Lord's judgment. 
So I don't think that that's what John was saying. Oh, well, I, I, need, I need the day of the Lord's judgment. No, he's saying I need the Spirit of God. I want to make certain that I'm in a right place to be a recipient of your said kingdom. So I think either way that a person were to go with understanding John's posturing of himself in this place of humility, that he stands in need, he, he recognizes that he's standing in need and that King Jesus is the one that has what he needs. Kind of like what we were singing here you're all I need. You know, what we need is we need Christ. All we need is Christ. And it seems that John is posturing himself in such a way to, um, to where that is the, the clear uh, recognition of his heart, that he needs a baptism of Christ. So Jesus, in looking to resolve this dilemma for, for John, says there in verse 15, he just says, Jesus said to him, permit it at this time. For in this way, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. So Jesus, in essence, says to John, hey, it's okay. I think Jesus probably understood John's dilemma. And the situation that John found himself in. Jesus is saying it's okay. He says, John, this is how we are going to fulfill all righteousness. Now, it's important to understand that Jesus isn't speaking here of righteousness as the imputed righteousness that he freely gives to repentant sinners. That which would grant sinners a right standing before God for all eternity. It seems Jesus is saying to John... That through his participation of water baptism, they would be upholding and thus affirming through their actions both the preparatory ministry of John in making straight the way of the Lord and of the beginning of Christ's ministry. And it was through water baptism that both John and Jesus would thus fulfill all righteousness, meaning the right plans of God the Father with regard to John's ministry and the fulfillment of that and then the beginning and thus the fulfillment of the coming ministry of Jesus. In other words, Jesus' baptism, it seems, would be the apex, the fulfillment of John's prophesied ministry as being the forerunner to this Messiah King and the beginning of Jesus' ministry during his first advent. So Jesus tells John to permit it at this time, and as such, they would be fulfilling the Father's good pleasure for his Son, and thus John baptized Jesus, fulfilling all righteousness, fulfilling the plans, the right plans of God the Father. And then what happens immediately following Jesus' baptism seems to be all the proof that we would need to understand of what Jesus was saying, of the fulfillment of all righteousness, about needing John's baptism in order to do this. Notice verse 16. He continues there in verse 16, and it says, after this, after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of heaven said, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The same language we saw there from Isaiah, in whom I am well pleased. Well, this 
baptism here, when Jesus was baptized, is from a Greek word, baptizo. And in, in the BDAG, the Bauer, Art, Dark, Dank, Art, and Gingrich lexicon, it just simply has a definition that says to put or go underwater in a variety of senses. And then it goes on and it lists the many variety of senses in which that baptizo could find some application. But if you notice here, it's, it's, it's the simple idea of to put or go, and the key part here is under. It could be water, it could be any other form of liquid, but um, obviously with the baptism in the Jordan, we would be, we would be making with reference to water. So it's the, the putting or the, the going under the water, and, and it's in a variety of senses. So with baptism, it would be the putting or going under the water with a human body. And so this is where we kind of, we, we derive this idea of immersion, of baptism by immersion. So again, in verse 16, says after being baptized so it would seem that after Jesus was immersed in the water he was put in the water as opposed to the water being put on him which would be like a sprinkling it's not that the water is put on him but the end of in baptizo it's it's the the thing the object the individual being put in and under the water so there's a there's a distinct difference in just how the word itself baptizo is defined so after being baptized after being put under placed under the water then Jesus, it says, came up immediately. And so um, this is why when we baptize people, we, we practice that second part of bringing them up immediately. Uh, and and <laughs> instead of holding them under permanently and just sending them on to glory, which perhaps would save them many a struggle in life prevent them from many a temptation and so on and so forth but the other part of baptizo that's 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 kind of the the, the symbol the symbology the the, the what's symbolized in this act you you can see that the putting of of under the water the the act of of putting under water is is representative of dying it's rep, it's representative of a death it's representative of burial that's why whenever we baptize people, we say buried with Christ, and you place them underwater. It's, it's a visual representation of being put under, of being buried. And so the, the, the Jesus came up immediately from the water is where we say, and raised to do what? To walk in newness of life. And so this is where this, this idea that, that has this immersion this believer's baptism by immersion not a sprinkling not um, any other form but of actually being put underwater now I've had people say well if that may be the case but what if and don't you always love the what ifs and it's always about the what if to somebody who's out in the back deep dark of Africa somewhere it's always somewhere out there but what if and they come up with some hypothetical situation where they try to get it get you with a gotcha you know like creating a stone so big that God himself can't move kind of a thing, right? Um, those are always interesting. And so, well, what if someone is in a place where they believe, but there's, there's no water for baptism, and they, and they can't be baptized like this? Well, the good news is, is that baptism doesn't save you. And so it's not needed nor necessary for entrance into the king's kingdom. But it is a step of obedience, 
And so what I would say to any said individual who perhaps finds themselves in, in a very unique one-off situation where there's not enough water to actually be put underwater and baptizoed and, in water, then just wait. Just wait. Remember Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch? Oh, there's some water over there. Let's just let's go do it now. And it says they went down into the river, baptized him, and, and, and immediately brought him back up. And then Philip vanished. And he's going, wow, what happened there? You know, it's pretty amazing. You just wait. And eventually you will find yourself at a place where you can be baptized. I had a, had a good friend in seminary. His name was uh, Sukhwant Singh Bhatia. He's from India, from Punjab, India. And he got saved while in college over there because there was one individual on the campus that he heard of that had a Bible. And he was interested in learning what the Western religion was teaching because he was, um, he was a philosopher. He did a lot of open-air debates on the campus. And um, he was just destroying everybody. So he wanted to add uh, the ability to destroy Christianity in the Western religion. But, but in their library, they didn't even have Bibles in their library, he said, but he heard word that there was some, a, a, a new student that came to campus and he had a Bible. So he went and he approached this guy and he said, um, if you'll teach me to read your Bible, I'll provide you security on campus. And um, I was like, security, that's interesting. He said, well, there was a lot of gangs on the campuses and uh, I was the head of one of the largest gangs on the campus. So I offered him some security um, if he would teach me to read the Bible. So in three months, within three months, he taught uh, Suquant how to read the Bible, which was in English. And he said he, he said he read through the Bible three times in the course of three months. He just, day and night, he just consumed. And he said, I originally started reading it in order to be able to debate against it and to prove it wrong. I came out from three months, and I was a convert of Jesus Christ. And so Suquant found himself in a quandary. Um, Sikhs, he was part of the Sikh tradition, they don't cut their hair. So he had the long hair with the big piece that held it up on his head. And so he eventually got to a place where he realized that he was going to need to, in obedience to scripture, going to go public with it. He talked to one of his Christian buddies and he said, if I was you, I don't know if I would do that. It's going to cost you everything. He said, yeah, I know, but I have to do it. So he, he snuck out in the, in the night, went down to a river, and there was a pastor that, that he somehow made connections with, a Christian. They went down to the river. They cut his hair off, and he got baptized by immersion in a river. Okay, And then the next day, he shows up at his house. His mother sees him. He, she says, he says that she screamed as loud as he'd ever heard her scream before, and she faints. The father comes running in with a, with a pistol sees what has happened, puts the pistol to him, and he basically says, you need to leave this house and never come back again. If you come back again, I will kill you. So he fled, took a few things, he took off, and then he said within the month, about three or four of his cousins showed up in the night and tried to kill him, and he was able to stave that off somehow by probably help of the Holy Spirit. And so the story goes on and on, but even Suquant, in obedience to Scripture, he'd read it for Three months, he read through the scriptures. He knew that in keeping with obedience to the teaching of Jesus, there needed to be a public baptism by immersion. And so he went and he did that. And before he did it, he even cut his hair. I mean, he just was taking the simple reading of scripture and came to that obvious conclusion. So you just wait. That's what I say. Just wait. And if you, and if you, and if you die before that time comes, you're going to have entrance into the kingdom of heaven anyways. Isn't that good news?
not contingent on being baptized, but Jesus was baptized, came up immediately from the waters, and notice, behold, the heavens were opened, and he, and if you see here in the New American Standard, he is in a lower case, indicating for us that this he is John, the Baptist, saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. Okay? Capital him, Jesus. So John saw the heavens opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove. And so here we have some figurative language, right? The Holy Spirit is a spirit. The Holy Spirit is not a, an actual bird. It's the Holy Spirit is a spirit. So he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove. So however a dove might, you might envision a dove lighting on a branch or whatever it might be, it's likened unto the descending. It's not likened to the actual dove imagery itself. But it had the descending aspects as a dove, and it lighted on him. Now, I will confess that I gave, I gave quite a bit of consideration and spent some time trying to dig to see if I could make any connections at all with when... Um, the dove went out from Noah in the ark, and then it never returned. And I was thinking, well, maybe, just maybe, this dove that went out and then never returned was just taken up to heaven. And then on Jesus' baptism, they released this dove, and it kind of descended. And so I was looking for anything I could find. I read everything I could get my hands on, and nothing gave any indication that that was the case at all. And I was like, well, well, I'll be doggone. Well, just maybe. And he's like, no. It was like an unto a dove in its descent down upon Jesus at his baptism. Having come up out of the water, John saw this happening. He descended on Jesus. And then John heard that, that beautiful voice that came from heaven there in verse 17 that said, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And I, I don't know about you all, but I try, when I read the scripture, I try to walk a step or two or a mile in their shoes. Try to, I try to get a feel for what life would be like if I were actually their hooves on the ground, whether I was John himself or I was perhaps one of the other individuals just waiting to get into, I'm waiting, I'm next up in line, right? I'm, so I'm standing here, He's having this conversation with Jesus that's going on a little bit longer than I was anticipating because the line had been moving kind of quickly. And, you know, and it's, it's kind of like the time when you pull up at the bank and you always pick the wrong line. You know, the, it's like you, you pick the line that's got the one car and the, the other ones have 10. So you get behind the one with one and then all 20 of them are gone and you're still sitting there waiting on said vehicle. I don't know how that happens, but I think that... The, you're, you're waiting, and here he's having this long, drawn-out conversation with Jesus. You're kind of going, man, it wasn't, ha it wasn't taking this long. So I try to imagine what hoof on the ground would be like. And it, John clearly saw the Spirit descending, and it seems that he also clearly heard the voice. As a matter of fact, in John's Gospel, I don't have this, this um, slide for us. I believe it's in chapter 2. John said that, that, that he had been told that the one upon whom the Spirit descended landing and landed on was, was him. He was the, the promised Messiah King. 
So it seems even from John's gospel, I should have thrown that slide in there, it seems even from John's gospel that God the Father made an arrangement somehow, whether it was in the dream of the night, whether it was just an audible to John, we don't know, but had communicated with John that Jesus was going to be coming to him for baptism and, and that he was going to see a spirit descending as a dove and lighting on Jesus and that this was the one and so I believe that John also probably heard the beatific voice from heaven that said this is him this is my beloved son this is the one in whom I am well pleased this is the one that you heard your mama telling you about that was your that your, your your aunt was conceived of the Holy Spirit before she and her husband Joseph even had relations this is the one that that you've been hearing about for most of your life and it seems that um, it seems that John uh, was making connections with this man Jesus the Christ. You remember it was John who, after the baptism, was saying, "No, no, no, he must increase. I'm on the decrease. I'm on the downslide. Jesus and his ministry is what it's all about." I was simply the forerunner that was making straight the way of the Lord, preaching that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king is here, and the king is here to do business and to bring justice to victory. And so as I made mention about three weeks ago, this was one of the interesting things about John's ministry, as John then started watching Jesus in his ministry, right? John gets uh, taken into custody, and... He sends his disciples to Jesus, asking the question, Are you indeed the one? It says, after John had been watching Jesus' works, he was asking, Are you indeed the one? And I think that that's a very insightful piece into understanding both John's ministry and Jesus' ministry. And in particular, that, that amazing mystery that the uh, that the apostle paul and the the new testament epistles talk about that amazing mystery of what we call the church age of understanding the distinction between the first advent and the second advent of jesus christ i do not believe that john in any way was under any illusion that there was going to be a second advent john believed that king jesus was showing up and wrath was coming with him holy spirit baptism and fire he had those two advents smashed together as he perceived it from the prophets because that which was concealed in the old was only to be revealed later in the new. Was it in the old? It was there, but it was concealed. It was not a known commodity. And then the Apostle Paul starts talking and giving explanation of that as he was receiving progressive revelation with regard to those distinctions. But John was even saying... I've been watching his works, and it seems I'm not observing what would seem to be indicative of a king establishing an earthly kingdom. Are we certain that you're the one, or should we be looking for another? I mean, this was even after John heard the beatific voice. This is my son. He saw the lighting of the, the, the spirit upon Jesus. He had been told previously he's the one. He knew about his miraculous birth. But even towards the end, you see the struggle, the consternation within John's heart. He had to be a man that lived by faith, even though he had so much revelation that was given to him. 
still had to walk out his, his walk in faith that, yes, this Jesus, the one you baptized, that you said you needed to be baptized of, he is the one. Just because he's not doing what you perceived that he was supposed to be doing in the timeline that you thought that he was supposed to be doing it in, he is the one. And that's why it's so crucial to understand Peter's use of Joel as well and the fact that the, the beginning of the baptism of the Spirit there at Pentecost all the way till the, the second advent and the day of the Lord, that that time span Peter referred to as the last days. And those are the last days in which we are living and in which we are also now doing um, ministry, gospel ministry, and building the kingdom of heaven, awaiting his second return. Amen? Well, this is, um, this is the, the setting up of Jesus and his earthly three-year ministry that begins there in chapter 4 with his first temptation. I've heard it said many times that until God really breaks a man, he's not capable of really using him much for ministry. Because oftentimes men want to do things in their own strength, their own resources. And God is saying it's going to be by, by my, my spirit and my resources, saith the Lord. And so we're going to see Jesus tempted with temptations that by the Spirit and the Word of God, he was able to overcome. And the application of that for us is not only timely, it's probably um, an ongoing recognition reality of our lives, of being tempted on a daily basis to stray and using the strength of the Spirit in which we walk because he abides within us to say yes to God and no to sin. That Jesus' ministry is beginning here in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 4 next week. So come back next week and let's really dig into this ministry of the man, Jesus the Christ. And let me, um, as I often do, let me just encourage you that if there's anyone here even today that's not placed their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't walk aisles and all that kind of stuff, but listen, you can walk up to me anytime after a service and say, I would like to have more information with how to have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Or Royce Wright, one of our elders, Matt Harkey, a pastor elder. This is what, this is, this is what it's about. If you're here this morning and you've never placed your faith in Christ, but you, you would like to. You sense that indwelling tug of your heart, that desire. Come see one of us. We'd love to talk to you about that. And also, perhaps in talking about and discussing baptism, perhaps there's some of you here today that um, there's a recognition that you've yet to actually partake in a believer's baptism, that perhaps you've come to faith and you place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you confess him as Lord, and you, you seek to live for him, but you know that you haven't, gone under um, the waters of baptism. I promise you we'll, we'll immediately, we'll, we'll bring you back, okay? But um, if, you need, if you need to do that, come see me. Let's talk. Uh, we, we're very flexible, and we can schedule a baptism here. Uh, we do it right up here. We pull out a big old uh, blow-up hot tub, fill it with water, and we just dunk you right here, right there, Matt Harkey and uh, Nate Callison. 
and they will bring you back. But if you need to do that in obedience to scriptures, let's do it. Amen? Let's, let's do that. So let's pray together. Father.